Well, hello out there, all you fearless ferns. Thanks for joining us for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am joined by the spectacular Casey. How's it going, Casey? It's going. It's going pretty well. It's the heat of the summer now, so I feel like I get a little like sun drunk (laughs) in the middle of the day. Yeah. What about you're, you? You're outdoors a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spent a lot of time watering plants today, so they didn't die. Um, so that was a lot of time and thinking about today's topic too, being like, oh, how am I going to do this? <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, yeah. yeah. I work indoors most of the time. There are some days where I'm primarily outdoors, but yeah, it's, so I wear a sweatshirt because I'm going in and out of I mean, I wear a sweatshirt anyway, but I'm going in and out of the coolers and freezers and stuff. So there's no way, like I, I would so much rather have the sweatshirt on, but then I do, you open the doors and walk outside and it's just like summer blast and my glasses fog up. No. <laughs> it's so muggy outside and all of that. So yeah, I feel that. Well, Sarah, uh, we had a challenge last week. Can you remind us what our challenge is? We had like is? 10 challenges last week. It was terrible. I'm so sorry, everyone. First of all, Good the options. entire episode was made up of little like actions that you could take. And then I think I had about five things listed at the end. So one of them was about tour de turtles. And yes. I was not, I guess, previously following tour de turtles. They do have a Facebook Okay. Account. So I did start following Tour de Turtles and I've seen a few posts from them, although I have not, I've not checked the leaderboard. So I'm not sure how our leatherback friends are doing in their race, but I did do that. I did also just work on planning a little beach trip for myself. I want to take Murray. I want to take my dog to the beach. He's never been to the beach, even though he is a Florida dog. So I've picked out a tentative beach location. And the next time I have a full weekend, I think we're going to do a beach trip. And I, you know, the internet that is listening to us and spying on us apparently suggested a a sea turtle release. There's a sea turtle release happening. I saw you RSVP for that. (laughs) I, well, I was interested. I will not be able to go. Unfortunately, it's, it's close to six out a six hour drive. So Florida's so big. Right. So I think for me to get down there this week, it would just not really be feasible, which is kind of a bummer, but someday, because like we talked about on our episode last week, it's not something, you know, if you don't just as a person by yourself want to go obviously and approach sea turtles or be near the nest, but you can do beach walks and things like that sometimes with conservation organizations. So at some point I, I do want to do that, but, but this week is not going to be the week. Did you plan any beach vacations? Well, I'm sad to report that my turtle truffle that I was hoping was going to do well, it has fallen even further behind. <laughs> uh, that's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's, it's okay. True. There's 113 days left for yeah. truffle to, to take the cake. Um, I haven't planned a beach trip entirely. I did after we were done go to Andrew and be like, we're going to go to the beach on one of our weekends, <laughs> but he decided to work a bunch of overtime. So that has been pushed off a little bit and it, we are like two months out for my wedding. So also like right. the panic has set in. So sure. we'll see. I might just make him plan that and then 
<laughs> take me with him to do whatever he plans. Just make him listen to the podcast episode. Just, first, it, it, don't worry. He gets <laughs> cliff notes every week, <laughs> but he'll need to hear your voice. You're right. We'll listen to it no, on the way over. No, no you won't. <laughs> um, I, well, I don't want to spend too, too long. I have other things yes. that maybe I'll bring up next week, but today's episode is going to be a little bit jam-packed to the point where there'll probably be a part two at some point because there's so much to talk about. But Sarah, this week we are talking about coal. We are doing our energy series that we promised you did solar. You kicked us off and I am now going to do coal because I was really interested in it. You look already overwhelmed. I just saw the question that you put in here. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very last minute. So I was trying to think of a question because they're like, do you know what? I don't know. Coal, like how much do we interact (laughs) with them? I actually have some coal interactions um, that I'll talk about later. But I, when I think of coal, I think of like all the mining tours Mm -hmm. that people would take. And so I was wondering if you've ever been on a tour of like a historic place, has it been touched by coal at all? I didn't give you any prep time. Not that I can think of. I mean, as far as coal is concerned, I certainly have done tours of historical places. My lack of memory of them is the problem here. I mean, I'm sure going right. (laughs) I'm sure going back to. I mean, I'm sure field trips in school, elementary school, they took us places and we went to historical locations. Could I tell you one of them right at this moment? No, I sure couldn't. Um, We've done like cave tours and things like that, but there's nothing that's springing to mind and certainly nothing that I can think of that would be specifically related to coal, unfortunately. So I'm a bust for this question. That's fine. I haven't also gone to, <laughs> like I've been to Gettysburg and mm-hmm. things like that. That was a little bit prior maybe to the bulk of the industrial revolution. Yeah. But uh, Pennsylvania, there's a town now I'm like, you know, bringing up something that I don't actually know that much about. There's one that is constantly on fire from the coal seams underneath. And so that's the coal wow. research that I, I, the coal field trip that I want to do is to, to go out there. So I'll, I'll pull up some more information, maybe share it later, but coal's really a big thing in Pennsylvania, obviously, mm-hmm. like when you're driving through Western Pennsylvania, you'll see signs like very pro coal or anti anybody who says anything about coal. Um, so, uh, Western Pennsylvania is a really like aggressive billboard area. I will say <laughs> like, we know you're not stopping, but you're driving through and we're going right. to let you know what's going on. So it is something that I have sort of interacted with that I'll talk about at the end. Um, but it's definitely a big part of a lot of people's lives in certain portions of our country. So it's really important. It's really a very, uh, weirdly American fuel source. And so we're going to talk about that today. So if you stick around, we're going to talk about coal. Right, guys, we are back with the main portion of our episode. We're going to talk about coal. So I wanted to start out, Sarah, with uh, the, of course, most basic question that you could ask. What is coal? Are you familiar with like anything about coal geologically? Yes. I mean, I feel like I have a sort of sixth grade level 
awareness. Tell me your sixth grade what level awareness of what coal is. And also every time I think about coal and how coal is formed, I imagine it's sort of being told in the voice of the DNA strand from Jurassic Park. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He has kind of the sort of Southern accent and the, yes. like, the dinosaurs. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I do imagine popping in a VHS on a TV that's on wheels. Yeah. 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 And your teacher turning the lights out while yeah. you watch it. Yeah. Because that's that's sort of what I know about coal. So we call coal is, is one of the fossil fuels, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think when I was young, I probably thought that coal was made from dinosaurs because, and I think that's why I hear that dino DNA oh, sure, voice sure. in my head because you hear fossil fuels. And when I thought of fossils as a kid you think dinosaurs and so I'm like it and we know that coal takes millions of years hundreds of millions of years to form so I thought it was dinosaurs it's not really dinosaurs it's plant material for the most part plants that died underwater and then time and heat and pressure and then it's coal (laughs) That's what I know about. <laughs> That's very so cool. Okay, you have yes, you have condensed my two questions. So I'm glad that you've you've uh, oh sorry this together. No, you're okay. Spoilers, right? We're diving right in. So yes, it is made up of formerly living things. I actually, for some reason, it slid out of my brain that it wasn't dinosaurs at all because I think I've seen like web comics that are like, sure. oh, I'm a dinosaur, yeah. and then they're bones, and then they're just like out the end of a I don't know car or whatever. Um, <laughs> That's not coal. Maybe it's gas. Ooh, um, we're going down well, the wrong. That's another episode. That's another episode. <laughs> we're going down the wrong path. Um, but yes, it actually predates the dinosaurs. So it's mostly basically the areas where coal was, was mostly swamplands. And so there were things like ferns and all sorts of plant material that, yep, you got it. Go into the water over time, heat pressure. They are metamorphosizing and under this heat and pressure turn into coal. Which is crazy. And so, Sarah, we are a certain uh, type of life form. We are a carbon-based life form. Yes. Um, And so coal is carbon-based for the most part. Um, It is 70% by volume about carbon and then 50% by weight. So there's other parts of it. You might consider that impurities if you're someone who's trying to use the coal for energy, but it's mostly carbon. Um, although there's other parts that are heavier that will, uh, come into contact a little bit later and it's readily combustible. So you can light it on fire is a history of coal. Cause I kind of thought like, okay, but how do we figure this out? Who's right. lighting rocks on That's, fire? I always wonder that. So the first evidence of coal being used as a source of energy was almost 3000 years ago in China. And at that time it was only used in places where it's readily accessible. So there are places where coal seams are very, very close to the surface of the earth. And so folks there were able to find it and then they were just burning it like it's a log to use for mostly heating their homes and probably some cooking as well. Do you remember in the air pollution episode that we did, I was talking about how Edward the first of England was like, no more burning sea coal in mm-hmm, London. Yes. And I was like, I don't know what sea coal is. Yeah. Um, apparently coal would just wash up on the shores of Great Britain. That's what sea coal is. So what? yeah, think of the last episode walking down the beach and then you're like, coal, <laughs> coal. Cool. It's there. And so, yeah, it would wash up and then people would burn it again for energy and for heat and things like that. And 
even at that time, way back in the day, the king was like, the air is not very nice right now because of all this sequel. Please stop doing that. So we we knew there was a problem pretty early, pretty early. on. Yes. But we also loved coal. The Romans, when they went and tried to conquer Great Britain, they were like, they've got this coal thing. It's great. And they took it back with them too. So it spread. Um, and in the Americas, the Hopis used coal to heat their pottery, to make their pottery. So um, a lot of times when you're on websites about coal, they'll be like, coal was discovered in the United States in 16. 16- no, it wasn't. It was discovered by the European settlers at that right. time. It had been used long before that. I still wonder though, a sequel. So just stuff washing up on the beach and they're like, let's light it on fire. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, you're like, did it spontaneously combust at some point? <laughs> or like, they were like, somebody rake up everything on the beach. We're going to make a bonfire. <laughs> <And they're> like, <laughs> that was way better than we thought it was going to be. Someone bring that home. I don't know. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. There you go. We have our answer to what point in time would you go back to? <laughs> You need to understand how this happened in the first place. So coal became especially important during the industrial revolution with the invention of the steam engine. Um, We were able to burn coal to produce steam and energy. And then as electricity became widespread across America, um, burning coal helped heat the water to produce the steam to turn the turbine to generate energy. If you're not sure what we're talking about, go to Sarah's Energy 101 episode because she talks a little bit about that. Um, That's basically the power plant. That's how we're getting this electricity from it. And I said that coal is a pretty American source of energy. We have 25% of the world's coal here, which I thought was pretty crazy. Like it's around. Sarah, do you know where it is in the US? Well, I think it's actually fairly widespread. I remember I was, I was preparing a little bit for this episode, I came across even articles talking about coal in Indiana, but like any self-respecting person who's ever read the hunger games would know. (laughs) I think of Appalachia primarily when I think of coal. So up in your neck of the woods, probably, probably West Virginia and then Pennsylvania are probably the two states that come to mind when I think about coal for me. Although, like I said, I'm sure that it's, it's more widespread than that, but that's what pops into my head. Yeah. Go to, to my point of view as a 11th grader and having people draw maps of the hunger game districts and district 12 (laughs) was like right where we are. are, (laughs) We're like, Oh, we're all Candace Everdeen. Um, I think that if I remember correctly, coal's mined in like 26 U.S. states. So it really is a lot of different places. But the top places that coal is found in are mostly in Appalachia. So Pennsylvania is definitely one of them, West Virginia. But also there is a fairly large deposit in Illinois. There's an Illinois basin. And then most of the coal reserves that are left are out west. So Montana and Wyoming are some of the biggest producers of coal as well. So I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't really recognize that either. Also, I didn't mention uh, Kentucky, which also big coal country doesn't feel like it's quite like in that path, but it is. And uh, but of course, like Tennessee has coal mines. But for Pennsylvania, um, it's a pretty big historical like it, it feels like part of the identity of of Appalachia is coal. Um, So going pretty close to that when I was 
in high school, I went to maybe eighth grade, went on a mission trip down to West Virginia to help build and repair folks' homes. And the people that we visited were like the most lovely people in the whole world. And they had been married. They were in their nineties. They were, had been married for 70 years and they were the cutest in love old couple I've ever seen with this chubby little beagle. And, um, and he was a coal miner and he had black lung actually. And so he was on supplemental oxygen, but coal mining is very much part of that particular strand of the American experience. So it's, it's very important to a lot of people's identity and heritage. In the U.S., we produce most of the coal that we consume. So about 90%, 99% of the coal that we burn as energy today was here in the U.S. originally. So it's also a very domestic product. And 1% is imported from Colombia and some other sources. And it's actually just cheaper in some of those areas to bring it in from that other country, actually, than to ship it across the country from where it's being mined here into other parts. So that's where it's imported. But we export about 12% of our coal to other countries, which includes India, China, and Japan. So coal, super important to our history. We wouldn't be where we are today without it. But you've mentioned that it's a fossil fuel, Sarah, right? Sure is. There's some impacts yeah. with coal. So when I was researching this, Sarah, when you were researching solar, because I initially had done like a, a little dip into solar to see if I wanted to do that as an episode how easy was it to find and like information on solar on like the government website? There's so much. I think I talked about that in the episode a little bit. There were just, the hard part was consolidating because they are just pages and pages on different topics. Yes. I was like, oh my gosh. Cause we were talking about, you were like, I'm not sure what to do. I'm like, just do solar. Cause yeah, it's all it's right, right there. there. <laughs> so easy. And so I thought coal would be the same way. I'm like the department of energy has got their crap together. Like I'm just going to, this is how we'll do our energy episodes is like primary source here. That is not the case with coal. And I think it is because we have an extremely complicated relationship with it. Now it is something that as an American culture, we have an outsized devotion to compared to where I think our current thoughts and feelings on science are. So those two things not aligning means that our government is really bad at talking about coal. Do you feel like- I I feel like that's 100% the case, not just with our government. I mean, I feel like that that is what makes it tough as- country and like that's what gives people heated opinions of it and I don't think it's it it's just it's one of those things where people are looking at it from opposite sides of the coin and and both both of these things can be true you have that sweet old couple you know and you're how you're talking about this like this is part of my identity and this is part of our history and that can be true but that can still be true as we take a look at some of the hard truths about the coal industry that we're going to do. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those environmental impacts. Again, I could not find a place where like it was a source that I felt was both trusted and consolidated a lot of information together because I was trying to avoid any website that was like stopcoalnow.com mm-hmm. or, or whatever, or like the Coal Alliance of America, which is a real place that I did actually find some information on, but I'll tell, talk about that a little bit later. So there's, I would say three major 
points of impact for coal. And the first is how we get it in the first place. So Sarah, when you imagine someone mining for coal, what do you picture in your brain? I imagine the deep underground shafts going down and, you know, just people coming out again, hunger games. (laughs) people coming out just covered head to toe and, you know, having to work in these, you never know if something's going to collapse or, you know, the air quality down there or what, that's what I imagine. I know that the deep underground mining is, has decreased. At least that's my understanding. We do that less and now there's more surface mining and obviously we have more machinery than we did back in the day and all of that. So I don't think that it happens exactly like it happens in my brain anymore. Although it's still a dangerous profession. Yeah. Oh yes. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a second. As you're talking about this, I think I might have been to a coal mine before I either that, or I have like a very vibrant memory of watching a TV show about it. But I feel (laughs) like, I feel like because the image I have in my head is talking about how back in the day they would have children and ponies that would go underground. And yeah. So back in the day, child labor laws didn't exist. (laughs) So you had children undermine coal, uh, underground coal mining, and you had ponies that stayed in the coal mines with them. And I remember being very sad because the ponies went blind after a while, because they just lived basically their whole lives underground, hauling the coal back and forth. Terrible, sad story. Sorry about that. That's why I'm pretty sure this is a real memory, but I'm going to have to ask my mom. Um, This is news to me. Oh, so sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And they, no, I'm pretty sure we went. Um, Anyway, nowadays there's a lot of surface mining, as you said. So this is also sometimes called strip mining, which I think is a more uh, emotionally evocative way of of framing it. Um, but when coal seams are within 200 feet of the surface, we typically dig them up. We don't try and go way, way underground and, uh, surface mining is much safer than the alternatives because the miners aren't underground. It's about 60% of how we mine our coal today. And this includes lots of heavy machinery, like you said, but it also could include a process called mountaintop removal. Do you remember hearing anything about that? I saw this a little bit just mentioned in some of the things that I was reading. I didn't dive into it, but this, I mean, that in and of itself, mountaintop removal has huge environmental costs too, right? I mean, just from habitat destruction alone. Yes. So mountaintop removal is like literally sticking dynamite into the ground and blowing the top off of mountains in Appalachia and Appalachia. We have destroyed 500 mountaintops Mm -hmm. that way as of the year 2020. Um, And it accounts for 1.5 million acres, which is an area larger than the state of Delaware. And there is something, you know, speaking about getting emotional about this, like I just hearing you say that out loud, I love mountains. We've talked about that a little bit. I've never lived in the mountains, but there is something just, you know, being in the Great Smoky Mountains is one of my favorite places to go. And there's just such a, like a calm and a peace that I feel when looking at the mountains. So this is surprisingly very emotional for me to hear about. Like that makes me sad to hear. I think there's something about a mountain. It feels like something that we couldn't destroy. Like maybe Mm -hmm. you can tunnel through it, but it's hard to imagine us taking down something so large in nature, but that's what we've done. We've 
blown them up. And when they're done, I was reading an article with who was someone who was actually a part of trying to regulate how to close up these just like blown off top of mountains. And initially they were just um, planting grass on them basically. And that was considered restoration. There are laws that basically say that you have to return the mountain to its general contour, whatever that means. <laughs> do you do that by additional dynamite or how are you reshaping I the, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. They would put soil on top of it and just grass oh, it up. And basically yeah. what this man was saying is that he regrets that so much because people started doing studies and they found that if you plant trees on them, it's way more effective. Like mm. you, you actually see basically when they planted grass, they would see a lot more invasive species of plants start to take foothold and not a lot of the natural forest coming to gather it up again. But when they planted trees, they had a decent survival rate of the trees and you actually saw the area get to be regenerated. That being said, like that's, that takes years for it to go back to anything like it was before. And we're talking about 1.5 million acres. It's so much. So that's how we do the majority of our mining specifically because it is safer and probably less expensive. The other alternative is going deep, deep into those mines. If my memory is correct and not a TV show, we went on an elevator and we had to wear hard hats way down deeper than you think it's going to be. And Oh, I'm anxious just hearing. <laughs> you don't like that. Um, one of the downsides of underground mining is that um, you have to leave basically some way when you're making tunnels, there still has to be something that's keeping the ceiling up. And so you have to leave a lot of coal behind because you either have walls or pillars that keep those caverns open while you're removing a lot of those, um, that coal from that area. It also releases a lot of methane. So that's kind of sketchy. And so they have to be really careful with minor safety. Like you obviously have to worry about things collapsing, but you also have to worry about ventilation issues. Yeah. This is the canary in the coal mine, right? Where that exactly. From. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Basically if that bird dies, birds are much more sensitive. You got to get out of there. So those are the two major ways that we get coal. And obviously they have a lot of impact. Underground mining, releasing methane also releases some other issues into the groundwater. And so it can contaminate the local groundwater, the local air. We've talked about air pollution before. Underground mining is not without it. Like it it feels less like an open scar on the earth if everything's happening underground, but you're still removing massive amounts of soil. There's lots of particulate matter, all sorts of stuff come under from underground mines as well. So there's a lot of issues with that. Number two, which is probably the one that we focus on most is when you actually burn the coal because you set it on fire. (laughs) Um, So it releases all sorts of stuff. Sarah, are you familiar with some of the things that it releases? A lot of the things that we talked about from our air pollution episode that you did, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've talked about our sulfur dioxides or nitrogen oxides, that particulate matter you shared the story. I'm already, I've already forgotten the name of the town that had the Denora. Denora. Yeah, that's right. You shared that story with us in the air pollution episode, which is an incredible story if you haven't listened to it. And then of course, our greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular, which is why you hear about this so much with relation to climate change. Yes. Coal, anytime you try and go on any of these websites trying to find it, it is almost always linked with the phrase, our dirtiest source of energy. 
it is both physically dirty particulate matter is basically when you burn things and there's like soot and dust and things Mm -hmm. that go into the air but also lots of carbon dioxide comes out of that it's our number one greenhouse gas it produces a lot more than other energy sources which we'll talk about in a moment you also have mercury and heavy metals that come out of it sulfur dioxide nitrogen dioxide particulates things that contribute to acid rain and smog and respiratory illnesses and all sorts of wide ranging effects when this smoke exits the smokestack. Now there have been things that have been done to help clean this up a little bit, but there's still some issues. And again, we'll talk about that in a moment. You also have to worry about, you know, we spent not very long on that, but that is really like the bulk of the issue with coal. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment. After the fact as well, when coal mines are abandoned is another point of impact. Coal mining and then the abandoned mines account for 8% of our methane emissions in 2019. Which is something I never really thought of. And I, you may not know the answer to this, but is this are these mines that have been tapped out, basically, that we can go no further, we can get no more out of, or not necessarily? Or I don't know, because like yeah. out West, you've got both obviously the major mines, but you also have like mine shafts kind of everywhere. So I don't know if it's just like, there's a lot of leaky mine shafts around or if it's from still sort of actively managed major mines that are empty, quote unquote. Um, So I'm not really sure exactly, but it is interesting because when you look at the pie chart, it's a decent slice. And the other ones are like, natural gas extraction and landfills are (laughs) and manure management. Those are all the other big major slices of that pie. Mm -hmm. So again, really hard to find information about this. One of the sources that first pops up when you're trying to find information about coal is a agency of the government called the Energy Information Administration, which I was like, how is this different than the energy (laughs) department or the EPA, but they have their own website. And I was really weirded out by it, honestly, because if you go, there's a page called coal explained coal and the environment. Um, the words climate change are not on this page at all. I believe that there is, there's a part that says, you know, they, they talk about greenhouse gas. There is something about methane emissions compared to carbon dioxide with their global warming potential, because we're talking about how a unit of methane is much more potent for greenhouse gas than a unit of carbon dioxide. So we have to measure those somewhat, but it doesn't say climate change on this page at all. And I think it really speaks to the fact that we have a hard time talking truthfully about coal especially as the government, because when you talked about it, like being an identity signifier and something we can't have a conversation about, you would hope that the people that we just turned to, to like see where solar's at could truthfully then give us a page that accurately reflected where coal's at. And we, you just can't compare the apples to apples on these pages. And one of the weird quotes off of this page that I thought was very strange is, Reuse and recycling can also reduce the environmental effects of coal production and use. Land that was previously used for coal mining can be reclaimed and used for airports, landfills, and golf courses. Uh, the golf course part <laughs> is what got me. I was like, who <laughs> wrote this page? <laughs> who wrote this? 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, it does sort of give away within that, that this land is not usable as its former space. Like as when I read this to Andrew, he was like, reclaim, you can't use the word reclaim because that really says like returned to what it was before. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, I I think that that's what, when I first read it, I was like, I mean, it is ridiculous, but I, I can buy that maybe what they're saying is this land is not going to be good for anything else. Like returning it to its former thing is not going to be possible. So you shouldn't use the word reclaimed there. But even so, like there's, okay, so airports, if we need, you know. We need them, yeah. But golf courses put me over the top. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, again, you're giving away that this is, this isn't not without its hazards, but like, yes, you, it can be used for other things. It's not just a giant hole in the ground. You can use them for necessary things. And then golf courses, which is like, not only very unnecessary, very specific, right. But also an extremely environmentally unfriendly activity. Like let's go plant non-native grass and water it year round. Yep. Also, is the first sentence of this unrelated, like reuse and recycling can reduce? That I seems mean, like a whole other topic. There, there's basically one sentence after this. Sorry, we didn't. We don't need to do a deep dive no, into I, the poor. I, I want to do a deep dive into this. Let me type in golf. You can't find climate change on this page, but you can find golf courses. Waste products captured by scrubbers, which is a way of cleaning the sulfur out of the smokestacks and emissions, can be used to produce products such as cement and synthetic gypsum for wallboard. That is reuse, I think. Sort of. It's like upcycling. Yes. I was more thinking like, are they saying that if we reuse and recycle, we are having to create fewer products that means that we need less energy to produce said materials. But that's it. Again, these are not, these are separate. I am going to hedge a bet and say a scientist did not write this page. Someone who knew what they were talking about didn't write this page and that's upsetting because this is the official energy website i well here's the thing though that i think maybe i'm gonna try to sure not to fit i'm gonna try to see if i can figure it out a little bit is that because this can be such a personal issue for people i do think that that maybe there are some times where you're like how can i reach people who don't care about this or, you know, so maybe they were coming from that standpoint to look like, Hey, I'm not trying to do a big scientific explanation here. I'm just reaching out to people who are looking for basic information. And here's, here's what I, and people like to golf. So (laughs) here we go. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I just feel like if so, they did a bad job. I don't know. Like, like who's convinced by this argument? See, Cole's great golf courses. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but we are going to talk about the pros and cons here of yes. Cole. So Sarah, what are some pros of Cole? I mean, I think that really you touched on a lot of them earlier to, to get us to this point. I think at least some people would consider like, the fact that we have coal in the United States, so we can use this to produce our own energy. People would say that as a a plus, I would say, I don't know if this is a pro, but I would say that people do feel very connected to it. It's a longstanding industry here. And therefore we're also set up for it, right? It works. Like we have the resources. And I think 
that that has to be considered maybe the biggest pro right now, which I don't know that this is really a pro in terms of, or if this should actually be a pro, but I think we, we see it as one, it's easy, it's here, it's familiar, we're used to it, the infrastructure is set up. And I think this could be a whole ethical debate, I guess, over how much it was really beneficial. But we talk about the Industrial Revolution. We talk about the power that coal gave us. And obviously, like we talked about, people have used coal for much longer than that. But this period in time where or whichever parts of the world you're in where people started to use coal whenever that was for your part of the world, you know, it did a lot more than manpower could do. And all of a sudden we are able to mass produce things and provide energy on a larger scale. And so whether you ultimately feel that that progress was a good thing or a bad thing, I'm very grateful for many of the things that we have today. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are without coal. Thanks, Cole. Appreciate Mm -hmm. it. I would say the only thing that you didn't necessarily hit exactly is that because we like we can burn it whenever. Mm. So unlike solar and wind, we're not waiting on the sun to shine or the wind to blow. We can, as long as we dig it up, um, we can burn it whenever. And according to the energy website, we have about 250 years left worth of coal in the U S if we burn at the same rate we are right now. Most of us, I think, feel pretty comfortable that if we were 100% still on board with coal and we didn't know all these things about its environmental impact, that that would be enough time for us to feel like we could come up with something else in the mm-hmm. meantime, right? Like, it's not like we're running out tomorrow. Yes. Sure. Yes, I, but I think that is a good point. And I, now I guess we're, we're branching off from the pros. So it's it's not considered a renewable resource. This This is a non-renewable resource because it takes hundreds of millions of years. So we would run out eventually. And I think that is a good point to, to make. Although, like you said, we're, we're not running out tomorrow. And, and that's right. a good because I, I feel like not so much anymore, but years, maybe even, you know, decades ago now. But I do feel like that was something that was brought up occasionally to, to be uh, as a negative towards the fossil fuels is that it's non-renewable. So we're going to run out. Uh, and I think it's important to be realistic about that right. too, and not scare people with the fact that, you know, it, it's, it's not going to run out immediately. Yeah. I'm going to be interested when we end up getting into things like oil to see sort of how that influences our conversation mm-hmm. there too, because that's one that we don't have as like, we don't produce as much of our own oil as we do produce right. as much of our own coal. So yes. we are a little bit more subject to like fluctuations and shortages. An assumed pro that most people, I would say politicians were using for a really long time. And it's was true up until very recently is that coal is cheap and coal is cheap And it used to be much cheaper than renewable alternatives. However, in 2018, according to Forbes, solar and wind are now cheaper than coal to produce energy with. So yes, for a long time, it was cheaper. And if you're looking at like, I know a lot of people feel very strongly about the market being able to determine, well, renewables will only 
be able to take over our energy sector when it makes sense financially. It makes sense financially now to use more and more of these renewable resources Mm -hmm. versus coal. So Sarah, it's non-renewable. It's not as cheap. What else are some of our, our cons of coal? So we mentioned it already, but the greenhouse gas production for sure. So I think here's where we start to come back to the heart of why we wanted to talk about this energy series. And first of all, it's super enlightening for me because I am a privileged person who's always just have power whenever I need it. And it's sort of a mysterious nebulous process in my mind for how it gets to me. So it is really interesting to me to learn more of the ins and outs of all of these different energy types. But I think what we're looking at here is, okay, coal is, is kind of the main thing that we use right now. We talked about what some of these pros are But these cons are really what we're trying to overcome because there is big cons from coal. So what we want to do is look at all of these other energy types as well and figure out, you know, how can we achieve those those pros basically that we have of coal while lessening all of these cons. So when we talked about solar, for example, and we talked about how, yes, there are still emissions that are associated with some stages of solar production that these do not hold a candle, that's a poor choice of a phrase to use for this, <laughs> but uh, but to the greenhouse gas emissions of coal. They produce, I mean, you have the numbers here, but so much more. Their emissions are so much higher than like what we talked about with solar. So that's a big one. We talked about the habitat loss as well. You mentioned 500 mountaintops. Mm-hmm. We talked about the pollution. Again, we covered this a little bit in the air pollution episode that you did, but all of those sulfur, nitrogen, particulate matter, all of those things are impacting people who have to live around these plants. I mean, at least historically, if not as much still today, the people who are mining uh, the coal. And then, yeah, I'll kind of let you touch on that, that last point too, but we talked a little bit about the safety aspect of coal production as well. Yeah. I got a really wonderful chart from our world and data who I appreciate very much because they did a little bit of comparison. So I've put it here, Sarah, it basically asks, what are the safest and the cleanest sources of energy? So Sarah, let's start because we've already talked about climate change a little bit. The right-hand side of the graph has to do with greenhouse gas emissions. What is at the top of the graph? Which source of energy emits the most greenhouse gas emissions? Why that would be coal. That would be coal. It compared to the next bar down, you've got oil. So is it like a, a lot more than oil? Is it like like a yeah, okay amount more than oil? It's obviously more, but not as drastic of a jump as we'll see further down. Right. Again. So natural gas is the next one. That goes down again, like a considerable amount. Mm-hmm. It's still more than half of what coal total greenhouse gas emissions are listed. But when you start to get down to things like wind and solar and nuclear and hydropower and biomass, like what are we looking at there? I I feel like it's an eighth or a tenth of what coal is, you know, and some of them even less. Like when we get down to solar at the bottom, it's literally a sliver. It's, you know, I don't even know how you would fraction that out it's, where it's, we've, we've got a bar going across for coal. It's a line. 
it is so the greenhouse gas emissions and this is basically measured by i think terawatt of energy if from solar to coal between 180 and 200 times more emissions coming from coal than from solar. Now, I remember back when you did a solar episode, the number that you gave wasn't quite as drastic, but I still think it was something like 50 it times. Was, yeah. It's it's still, there is no comparison when it comes to carbon emissions. These are not close. <laughs> yeah. And I'll put out that, that little caveat again, that there can be some fluctuation in these numbers mm-hmm. because these are hard things to chart exactly. And if you're looking at the, the sort of life cycle of the whatever energy source it is, those numbers might be different. So that's why it also might've been from different years, whatever I would have to different years, different look. countries. So, so yes. that's why those numbers might not be exact, but the, the fact of the matter is there was, they both were a drastic, <laughs> drastic difference. Completely different. There are actually different types of coal they're ranked basically by carbon, like age and carbon amount and pressure and et cetera. I didn't feel like we needed to learn that much about that, but basically that would be another factor that might change emissions based on, on the energy produced. Okay. The other part is safest and it has to do with the number of deaths per terawatt produced. Um, and that's due to both accidents and air pollution, which I do think is a little bit of a wild conglomeration. But basically, like, how dangerous is this to humans? It's hard not to put that in terms of, like, who died. (laughs) Um, And those are the two biggest ways that people die. So the top one on that list is what, Sarah? Oh, it's coal. It's coal. Look at that. It's coal. Um, I don't mean to be flippant about it. It Yeah. It's reinforcing these aren't just things you you hear. This is what the actual data is showing. People who are sounding the alarm about this are not being extremists by sounding an alarm, regardless of what their next, like, this is what we should do about it situation is. Coal is by far the the dirtiest and the most unsafe form of energy that we have. And so safety wise, it causes 24.6 deaths per terawatt due to accidents and air pollution, which is over a thousand times higher than solar, which is the safest. Um, But it's still 10 times more dangerous than natural gas. And sometimes natural gas causes people's houses to explode. Sure like, does. So this is, again, it's it's still the most dangerous. It's also worth mentioning that communities near coal mines experience higher rates of lung disease, lower birth weights, higher birth defects. And this is, was a study that controlled for things like poverty and smoking. So when you're looking at lung disease, when you're looking at um, these these birth implications. If you're someone who cares about those things, about the health of our community, coal impacts them. And it especially impacts them in areas where people are mining for coal. So it's not just, and not just the miners, but everybody who lives in that area. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also important to bring up that yes, if we transition away from coal, people are going to be negatively impacted economically, but also they will reap some benefits. If we're not still actively mining for coal in their area, there are some good things that could come out of it for those same people. And this is the thing that I think is so important. And I think it is so hard because we all understand or can at least imagine the hardship of losing a job and losing your industry, like not just losing your job, but the thing 
that There's you have else done and the thing yeah. that you know how to do going away. And that is a very immediate, we can see it, we can all understand it. And so I think that's what makes it so hard. Whereas all of these negative sort of health and safety impacts that we talk about, Cole, and I always do a terrible job of articulating this because I think, I mean, the data is there, like you're talking about. We have these studies that show how impactfully th th these are, but I think in the day-to-day, -day, it is one of those things that feels invisible. Like, yes, mm -hmm. things, bad things happen. People get sick. People have lung disease. People, whatever. But we sort of just accept that as the way things are. And so it doesn't feel like it's a fair trade-off, I think, to some people, if, I, if I'm trying to sort of imagine that, yeah. that mindset. So I think it is really important to sh have studies like this and to look at that data and really see like this, this really, really is impacting people. And it really, really is something that we can change. So I know you're going to mention this, but we do need to have plans. We need to get help. We need to figure out what to do for these folks as this industry transitions. And that's going to be really hard. Um, but I think, you know, we have to hang on to the fact that it's going to reap so much benefit in the end. And for lots of people who are already marginalized, these are already generally communities that mm -hmm. tend to be poorer than other parts of America in places where they do burn coal. That tends to be with more marginalized people who are nearby. This is the air we breathe. This is the water we drink. It absolutely impacts us. The other thing is, is that, you know, if we had burned coal at really low levels throughout our history, then maybe we could just keep doing it. Mm. But the cumulative impact of burning that much coal over that period of time, that carbon dioxide and the other emissions hang in the air for longer that, than that instantaneous combustion. They're hanging there and that's what's causing our overall global temperatures to go up. We can emit carbon emissions in different sectors. We will continue to commit, emit carbon emissions. Our planet just has a certain threshold that it can absorb for us to do our trees, our oceans. We have exceeded that. And we've basically run out of money, <laughs> like in our, our climate bank, if a carbon emissions are money, we've run out, we've, we've run out of our ability to be able to spend. We have to figure out how to, to take it down a little bit. So I do want to talk about where coal is at now. I was going to do a, where coal's going in the future. I can't, <laughs> not at least in this episode, there are so many things that are happening and it's very confusing because there's a lot of different people who have different prerogatives, basically. So in the U.S., about 21% of our energy is produced via coal. That is down from a high of 58% of our energy in 1985. Even though it's about 21%, it produces about 54% of our carbon emissions from the energy sector. So it's still an outsized portion of our emissions. And that's when you include other fossil fuels in what we're, we're burning. In 2020, approximately 42,000 people worked in the coal industry, and that included all employees engaged in production, preparation, processing, development, maintenance, repair shop, or yard work in mining operations, as well as office workers. So I wanted to know, like, is that a lot of people? Obviously, like cognitively, that's a lot of people. That's twice the size of my hometown. Sarah, do you know how many people work for the Disney World Resorts in Florida? Like 75,000 or something, isn't it? Yes, it is something like 77,000 people work in that. Now that's like across your hotels and, and the rides and all of that concessions. 
but more people work at Disney World. Twice as many people work at the company Tesla than work for all companies that mine and produce coal. So it really isn't, when, when we talk about these people, they're all important. Right. Yes. So that's, we're not yeah. saying this to diminish that, but we're just saying like, we should, we should be able to figure this out, I guess. Right. It's not an unmanageable number of people. There are, are lots of things that we do in this country. There are decisions we make for larger groups of people than this group of people. And, and so there's something we can do about it. And also, I know you have this on here too, but this is less like this, the industry has already shrunk. I think in part from what I was reading, Casey, it's because of that shift in part from underground to surface mining requires less people is part. And then I think also sort of this shift to natural gas, which we'll talk about natural gas in another episode as well. But that has already started shrinking the coal industry for reasons outside of the environmental impacts. Yeah. So really recently in 2012, there were twice as many people who worked Mm -hmm. in coal. There were over 80,000 people who worked in the coal industry in 2012 compared to 2020, which is where that 42,000 number is from. So it has drastically declined. Like you said, natural gas is a really cheap source of energy. It has more fluctuations now, but it basically undermined coal's ability to compete. Also, there are a lot more options than we used to have. Other than natural gas, we also have a lot more renewables. Like back in the day, you had coal. Mm -hmm. Now we've got some other options out there. And when you're looking at the economics, a scientist who did that study with the health impacts also made the argument that businesses don't want to move into an area where there's lots of water and air pollution. So as those coal mines continue to operate, that could be seen as a deterrent from other industries moving in because of the health impacts for the community. So potentially we can help balance that out when we solve some of those environmental issues. It makes those communities more attractive to economic development. And of course, policy needs to help make that just transition over to make sure that these people are taken care of as well. One of the things that gives me hope is how many people are working remotely these days. Not necessarily like those skills from mining cold transfer exactly over to remote work, but there's a lot more remote work. So you don't physically have to live in a place. Like I know that that's, that's something that I think is really upsetting is I, I come from a town that was both my, what I would consider my hometowns where my, my parents live are, are former steel towns and they're not anymore. And that's wrought destruction <laughs> of, amongst the Rust Belt. If you're from like Pennsylvania, Ohio, like, you know what a dead town kind of mm-hmm. looks like from when the steel industry crashed, but now you can recover and there are other options. You don't that, have to leave yeah. and you don't have to leave. Like that's the, yeah, that's the biggest part. You don't want to leave home. Like if, if the coal mines leave, are we going to have to leave our area? Well, not if we have other infrastructure in place that allows you to both bring businesses in, but also maybe work from home and have a community in your same location while getting your, your money from another location. 
Today, there's lots of different technologies that help us reduce the impacts of burning coal. I would like to cover them in another episode more extensively. Some of the ones that are in place now are sulfur scrubbers, which basically help pull the sulfur out of the smokestack. They're like 99% successful in doing that. So those emissions, the ash that comes out of the smokestacks have mostly been contained. So a lot of those air pollutants have been reduced with this technology. Another way that they've taken out some of the impurities of coal is they call it washing. And when I was first reading about it, I literally thought they meant washing because they say like, <laughs> you just add water. <laughs> just clean it. Scrub it. Clean it. Scrub that coal. Um, wash I have it no down. idea what it means. <laughs> okay. So what it means is basically they grind it up. And I mentioned earlier that it's 70% carbon by volume, but 50% by weight. So the other stuff is heavier. That The other 30% is mm-hmm. weighs 50% of that, that chunk of coal. So when you grind it up, and you put it in a dense liquid, the, the coal floats and the other stuff sinks. And so then it, it comes out and then you can burn slightly cleaner coal. And that's part of it is like making things more energy efficient, Science not just like is so cool, so cool. Right. It's not just about reducing the carbon emissions. It's also about reducing the carbon emissions per unit of energy that you can produce. So that's what that's about. There's also carbon capture. If you read the websites that want you to believe that coal is the future, they will have you half convinced that carbon capture is extensively used everywhere. Are you familiar with carbon capture? You're we like talked nodding. about it a little bit, a little bit, yeah. The, the podcast before, and I can't remember the article, but aren't there like two carbon capture facilities or something? Oh, good point. Good point. We're actually talking about a different type of carbon capture. So you're talking about general atmospheric carbon capture where you pull it out of the atmosphere, right? Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. No, thank you for bringing that up. This is basically point source carbon capture where like, imagine putting like- I'm aware. Yes. I'm aware that this exists. I'm not as familiar with the process. It exists, but like finally the BBC, which was linked again from this energy administration, Uh EPA websites. I got onto a BBC article and it was like, yeah, this is what it is. It's not used widely because it's too expensive. And basically what it is, is they capture the carbon dioxide emissions and they think they, they know that you can pump it underground and you can use it actually as pressurization to pump gas out of the ground too. So another fossil fuel can be helped out by, by these coal carbon captured, or you can inject it into wells or saline. I will do a deep dive eventually. Yeah, I was going to say this needs its own episode. It needs its own episode. When, when they explain it on any of these simplistic explainers, it reminds me of the coal washing where I'm like, so you just like take it out of the air and you stick it over there and we never think about it again. Like it feels a little bit like magic slash cheating and I'm not sure exactly. Um, but the point is, is that it's not happening at the level that even when you go on the American Coal Alliance's yeah. website there, that's the first thing they list. And it's because they know that the major argument against coal at this point is climate change. They want you to think that there's a, a used solution but it's just, it's not implemented at the scale that it needs to, to make coal competitive with those other things from a climate change perspective. So, yeah. So just to clarify as, as I'm laughing at this and not trying to make light of it, but just, yes, having the realization that it's not an answer that's working right now. Right. I think it's important. That's going to work. 
Sarah and I have been talking about this long enough in our, our professions to know that lots of, of things will claim to basically technologically solve our climate change problem without us having to make any sort of behavioral change in the meantime. And that's what a lot of this feels like is like, D- don't worry about burning coal. We'll just stop having the emissions come out. Don't worry about like driving less. We'll just suck it out of the air after you drive. It's it. We're going to have to do both. We're going to have to take it up on the back end and the front end. There are countries that are promising to phase out coal. Canada, Poland, Ukraine, Indonesia, Vietnam, and South Korea um, have pledged at COP26 to stop burning coal eventually. I think Canada's in the 2030s, which is a pretty good timeline compared to better than 2050, the dang 2050 that everybody else is always going for Some of these guys have like 2030s, 2040s, the U S China, Australia, India, who are big burners of coal have not pledged to give up coal. I think that would be considered political suicide in the U S if someone said that we would not burn coal, even though that genuinely may be our future, even if you don't care about climate change, it just might not be economically viable to keep burning coal. We did pledge, though, to divest from fossil fuel projects in other countries. So that's something? It is. Yeah. So that's most of what I have. I am going to tell a little bit of a longer story than normal during our closing, but Sarah, I want to hear your thoughts about coal. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. No, I think that this was really good. And I hope I think that you helped me put words to some of the things that I have felt about coal and really, really wanting to to show that we can understand and appreciate the value that coal has brought and understand why people might feel so connected to it and respect those things while still saying, but here's why this this can't be the future. And it is okay to change and also to to, to recognize that we understand it's hard to change, but hopefully highlighting the how big these impacts really are for coal. So I, I really think that that was a, a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. And I am looking forward to part two whenever that falls too, because there is so yes. much more like all because there are all of these other things that you hear about and how do you parse out what is real and what is actually helpful and you know what what's really happening and what things can look like in the future. So yeah. Yeah. And we only really talked about the U S too. Like there's right. so many things yeah. happening in other areas where their grid is different than ours. So mm-hmm. thanks for sharing in this discussion with me, Sarah. We'll be back in a moment with our challenge of the week. All right, guys, we're back. Here is my little story about little baby 18-year-old Casey going to college, Um, went to the University of Richmond, and it is legitimately, I think, listed on the top 10 like most beautiful campuses in the U.S. It is gorgeous. So many of the buildings were built during the 1800s, and unlike a lot of other campuses where they've then built new buildings with new styles, they committed to making all the buildings look like they were built with the same brick style and it is just mind-blowingly beautiful but when you walk around campus in the distance not super far because it is on campus there is a smokestack for the coal plant that was on campus that was actively burning coal when I was a student at the University of Richmond 
So I joined the environment. I've always been interested in the environment. I joined the environmental club and one of the, the girls who was there, she's one of the most inspirational people that I only knew really for a year. Her name is Caroline. And she was like, you should, they always did, I think, secretary as a freshman position. She's like, you should run for secretary. So I did. And I became secretary of the club. And during those leadership groups, we would talk about how to get the campus to divest from coal. So we staged a protest. We got on the news for it. And eventually we were able to get a meeting with our president and the other administration officials to meet with us about how we were passionate about not burning coal literally on our college campus anymore. And they told us no. They told us that they didn't feel like the campus cared about it and that we needed to prove that students cared about where their energy came from and also that students use too much energy. So if we can make them stop using so much energy, then maybe they can stop burning as much coal. What you should know about the University of Richmond is it's also one of the richest college campuses in the country. It's not like they don't have money to make a change. We left that meeting so frustrated. Sarah, it looked like you had something to say. I was just going to say, it's also not like they didn't know back when you were 18 no. what the health and environmental impact. I'm 29, guys. If I sound older than that, this was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we knew so much longer. This We were teaching climate change my senior year. It was, how do we cl- solve climate change in Virginia while we were burning coal on campus? We had professors who had written books about climate change, and we were burning coal on campus. And they told us, you have to prove the students care about it after a group of students who cared about it went like, to well, the administration. You just proved that you don't care about your students. So absolutely. And like, of course, students in in that particular environment specifically didn't care as much about energy use because we were paying tuition. We weren't paying energy bills. There was no like actual way to sort of measure. We would do a competition each year where we would try and get each of the dorms to compete against each other to reduce their energy usage and be like, oh, stop using your hair bl- dryer or whatever you're doing. And hair blower, your hair blower, whatever, whatever it is. I don't use it. <laughs> Um, that was one of the most frustrating meetings I had. And then our sustainability director, who I interned with, she ended up leaving and there was a new guy. And now the university of Richmond has solar panels on top of their gym. It took so little time from the time that someone told us, no, we won't stop doing it because no one cares to the campus, just making the unilateral decision to to put it on. And I think by the time, like five years later, they were only burning it in the winter time. I don't know if they're hundred percent off it now, but they certainly made some strides in that time period between when they told us no, and we're not doing anything about it. Not even like, here are our plans. No, you guys don't care. So we don't care. We're not doing anything about it too. We have solar panels on the roof. So change is possible and it's possible quickly. And so my challenge of the week to you is to, I've talked about this before, identify what your community is. If you're a college student, it's probably your college campus. If you're someone who's working all the time, maybe, especially if you're at like a corporation, maybe that has a little more wiggle room for money, that might be your community. It might be your faith group. It might be an extracurricular activity. You might be a volunteer somewhere. You are part of a greater community. And when you get loud, change is made. 
And it might not be made right away, but it can be made eventually. And so Sarah talked about some options that we have for solar that we've now talked about is much cleaner and safer than coal to transition yourself over to see what your green power options are. But at a higher level, what is your community doing? How is your church powered? How is your job powered? How is your school powered? How can you transition that much bigger energy sink over from something like coal, which produces 21% of our, our energy to something bigger? So my challenge of the week is just to talk to someone about it. Talk to someone as part of your community about what you guys are doing as far as energy and how maybe you can start taking steps over to renewable resources and away from coal. It's a good challenge. That is a challenging challenge. I love it. It is a challenging that's, challenge. But that's, you know, we have to have, I think we try to present challenges that are going to be accessible for people and achievable. And this this is definitely that, but it may push some of us, myself included, outside of our comfort zones a little bit. And, you know, sometimes you got to do that. So I think that's a great one. Also, look at you just being a conservation hero, college Casey. <laughs> and current uh, Casey, obviously, but all the way back in into college. I mean, like, I, I, I do genuinely have an appreciation for people who really identify with coal as part of their heritage. Another place that we did a protest was Virginia Tech, which has coal stacks on their campus too. That's the middle of the Appalachians. Like it's very much very close to West Virginia. I get it. But also those communities will also be impacted by climate change and all the other impacts coal have. So I really hope that we can start having more challenging conversations since we've talked about how hard it is just for our government websites to paint an accurate picture of this compared to the straightforwardness they talk about a lot of our other energy. So we have to start having that conversation here instead of letting whatever the national conversation is. All right. And thanks for listening, everybody. Hopefully we can all help be a part of that conversation and, you know, feel free to have conversations with us too. There are lots of ways that you can find us. You can, you know, if you have questions or thoughts about this episode or any of our episodes, we have an email address. You can email us your questions. If you want us to do a little more digging into something to try to, to help you find something out, we can try to do that too. Our email address is a little greener podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on the social medias. We're on Facebook, a little greener podcast. We are on Instagram at a little greener pod. We're on Twitter at a greener podcast. And we always love to hear from you. And if you do find something out, if you talk to your work or community or church or whatever it is and you find out something cool feel free to share that with us too thanks for listening guys especially for all of you who are still here in the long episode we'll talk to you <laughs> next week bye